Hello, everyone. We are coming to you from San Diego and ACR 2023. You just joined the psoriatic arthritis panel discussion. In this podcast and video, we're going to discuss amongst the psoriatic arthritis faculty some of the highlights from ACR 2023 on the topic of psoriatic arthritis. We'll be doing topic podcasts in multiple areas, including RA, lupus, spa, um, Jackin, but this one is all about PSA and all things psoriatic. I'm going to ask my faculty to, to introduce themselves. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas. Orly? Hi, I'm Oheli Najm, Glasgow. Nice to be here. And Robert, Robert Chow from Virginia. Dr. Robert Chow from Virginia. So we, we've got the globe covered. Um, uh, first, I want to um, get a quick uh, report um from both of you about your experience orly you were at the meeting you flew all the way from scotland to san diego thankfully for you the weather was good um what do you think of the meeting yeah i mean i think i think it was really good um you know it was the i think it, the big highlight for me was the return of the live posters where you know and it was you know it was massive there was a lot of science a lot of posters every day I really enjoyed that that for me was a massive highlight and I think you know San Diego is just a nice place to be you know it's sunny it's nice the conference center is good you have this view in the bay you know you can have a break in the sun so yeah I mean I've, I've loved it yeah it was good and at break time you could go outside walk around and get some sun as Robert Chow knows all too well as he trained in San Diego, but he didn't make it. You did this virtually, Robert. How did that go? I think the virtual format is getting better and better every year, you know, less laggy this year. I think maybe just because less traffic, because everyone's probably in San Diego. Um, you know, the, the, you know, they made it very convenient for us folks um, attending virtually. You could filter by live stream, made it very easy um, so the, the virtual format is great. Um, you know, I think we have a tough job. I know ACR is in DC next year at my home turf. Um, we probably can't compete with the weather, so we'll see. It wasn't terrible here though, but it's not as nice as San Diego. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, luckily it was okay for you, but, uh, I, I want to reiterate what, um, Orly's just said that the, um, the big obvious thing was, uh, aside from being back at a live meeting was the poster floor. Um, poster hall was just just seas of people, you know, and and uh, you couldn't possibly walk on that uh, poster floor and meet people who you haven't seen in a while, see new things, see the giants of rheumatology alongside the fellows of rheumatology. I mean, it was it's it's a great mixing experiment. It's a great way to learn and discuss. Um, and it's almost like they should have it for four hours rather than the two hours that they run it because it opens at nine and by 11, you've got to run to the plenary session. So, um, but I, I agree it was a highlight. All right, let's get into it with uh, what we thought were some of the uh, big PSA content delivered at ACR 23. Uh, Arlie, why, why don't you begin? Yeah, um, so I want to talk about the ISER studies. It was abstracts um, 0495. So I think it was really interesting. We always have these patients with PSA or ACSPA that, you know, have um, 
bowel symptoms and it's sometimes quite hard to know whether you know it's IBD or not they also take uh, NSAIDs and so this, this study what they did is that they took a cohort of uh, over 500 patients um, and a third of them 35% had PSA and and the rest had um, you know a AXPA, um, radiographic or non-radiographic. Um, and so what they did um, is that they they looked into the fecal calprotectin in all of these patients. Um, the mean time of diagnosis was about 12 years. So these people had well-established um, disease. And the cutoff they chose for the calprotectin was 80 microgram per gram, which is a bit lower than the 100 um, that is normally used. Um, and if they had a higher calprotecting than that, they would then go for an endoscopy. Um, and so 50% roughly of the entire cohort had abnormal calprotecting, so over the cutoff. And so they all underwent a um, um, a, col a colonoscopy. And what was interesting as well is that 80% um, of these either had radiographic AXPA or PSA. And the non-radiographic -radio guys were only 20% with abnormalities. So um, when they did the colonoscopy, 40% had features that could be concordant with IBD. Um, and I think one thing that is a bit of a shame is that there were no information about, you know, whether they were taking NSAIDs, what the dose was, uh, and even what treatment they were in general, because I think that obviously might have an impact. Um, but amongst these people, this 40% that had abnormal uh, colonoscopy, 40% um, only had symptoms. Um, and 10% had an history of IBD. Um, but so in the end, they, they diagnosed 4.5% roughly of the cohort to so like 20 patients with definite IBD. The rest, they don't really say, but I, I, I would assume that it's probably, you know, treatment related and SAID related. Um, but, you know, what it means is that technically across this, this cohort of over 500 people, 23% had undiagnosed IBD. Um, which, as you think of, it, is quite a lot. Um, right. So, so I think I think this is something to keep in mind, um, definitely. Yeah, there's been some reports in in our, some of our last meetings that whether this is something that's been thrown around, but I don't think something quite this large a cohort or quite so systematically studied with everyone getting fecal calprotectin levels and yeah. then and then that being the decision point for um, uh, uh, colonoscopy and further evaluation. So. Um, Robert, what was your take on this data? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I feel like sometimes every meeting we go to is we come, become more and more GI docs. You know, it's always gut microbiome, probiotics, right. and then and now we have to do, uh, you know, uh, calprotectin. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, I, I think, you know, I definitely, without a doubt, I, I can't, just so many patients I see who, when you ask them necessary questions, oh, yeah, you know, I have these symptoms. Have you seen a GI doctor yet? And I think most time it's really, you know, the way I explain it to patients is they come see whoever they have or wherever they have issues, right? If they mainly have joint issues and the diarrhea is not the terrible, they may not go to the GI or they kind of put that in the back burner. So I think obviously we know as rheumatologists, we kind of act almost as a surrogate primary care uh, for, for the most or the majority of patients and getting that early recognition and hopefully ushering them to the right specialist in a timely manner is important. So the problem I see going forward is that what I heard from a lot of the the um, 
psoriatic arthritis and spa experts is that fecal calprotectin has sort of fallen into some some disfavor, meaning it's it's overly sensitive, right? It it uh, picks up way too much. Um, it's not all that easy to measure. So I don't know that we have a good screening tool other than asking a lot about GI symptoms or having a low threshold to do um, a capsule uh, colonoscopy, uh, the capsule camera colonoscopy. Yeah. Um, what would, uh, would, do either of you have a recommendation since basically the yield is 5% of all PSA and spa patients will have this. Um, it's easier if they got a lot of GI symptoms, but the, one of the messages of this was that a lot of these people don't have any symptoms, yeah. majority. So what's your screening tool going to be, if not calprotectin? Or yeah, like I, th I think it's a tricky one. And, you know, it's even trickier because then all of those that had, that had abnormal colonoscopies and were in diagnosis, what do we do with these people as well? You know, because and then shall we shall them just stop the NSAIDs and just recontrol and shall we do that? So it's it's even trickier than that because it's not only the five percent, it's the other forty the thirty-five percent. But um I think no, I think there is no there is no good tool anyways. I would still go with the calprotectin. I will maybe up the cutoff a little bit because you know I think 80 is even lower than what we usually go for. So you will pick up even more people. Uh, or maybe combine, you know, the calprotecting with the clinical score, but then you miss all of those who don't have symptoms. So I don't think there's a good answer here. I don't know what you think, Robert, but. Yeah, I wonder if this is, I don't know, this is a phrase that we could use, but like, a you know, like for our pre-clinical pre RA, I wonder if this is like a pre-IBD that I just, I simply don't know enough about, you know, and I think it is a tricky question to answer. Um, personally, again, I, I think I, I try to go off of at least some symptoms before, I make that recommendation. I don't know if I have enough confidence, I would say, in, in this right. marker. You know, what we don't know and probably wouldn't be all helpful is what other markers were available other than the fecal calprotectin. But since they have a spondoarthropathy of some sort, you know, finding an elevated sed rate or CRP may not be all that valuable. Finding some anemia may not be all that, that valuable. I think what maybe the take home is going to be is this kind of research, as Dr. Chow has said, which seems to be repeated these days, and when we go to these meetings, this idea of occult GI disease um, looming in people with either SPA or PSA uh, should heighten our awareness and heighten our um, looking for other, I just need a reason to do to go the next step and do the GI referral uh, yeah. or do the camera study. And I think that, the, you know, or, or to do you know, look for blood in the stool. I think that that makes sense. But, uh, and and I think that the people, like the both of you are into PSA. So you'll be kind of thinking this way. The average rheumatologist who just has PSA patients and may not consider themselves a, a, a spa PSA expert may not be thinking of this, but hopefully our reporting about this repeatedly will get them to have a heightened sensitivity to this issue. Interesting yeah. study, nonetheless. There was a lot of talk about this at the meeting. I, I want to tell you, uh, Dr. Chow, what do, what's on? What do you like? Yeah, so you know, I always like to focus on um, imaging and, and enthesitis, and of course, by imaging, I mean ultrasound. In this case, and this was um, abstract two two four three, based off of the ultimate study. Um, so just to recap that. That was a year-long, 52-week uh, study that demonstrated responsiveness 
of uh, ultrasound detected synovitis and enthesitis in, in psoriatic arthritis patients, and then confirmed um, cicokinumab's efficacy. So this was then going to look at, is there any relationship between ultrasound detected enthesitis versus clinical enthesitis? So, you know, pretty much clinical enthesitis is the traditional, I poke you there, does it hurt? If there is a potentially a tendon, maybe enthesitis, right? And then ultrasound, of course, we understand is power Doppler and looking for other markers, um, uh, you know, through the muscular skeletal ultrasound. They enrolled 166 patients. Um, and in terms of the clinical enthesitis, uh, the, the scoring system was by the spark index ultrasound was by power Doppler. Like we mentioned in across six sites bilaterally, um, you know, again, emphasized that over 52 weeks, both clinical and ultrasound enthesitis had sustained resolution, um, and over 50% in both arms. So efficacious in those regards. But the most interesting finding was there was no correlation between clinical and ultrasound enthesitis. So I think, again, emphasizing, at least I think, you know, I and, and, and you know, most most um, uh, clinicians in, in rheumatology nowadays may be shifting more towards an ultrasound and image guided objective kind of enthesitis um, evaluation versus the traditional poking mechanism, if you will. And I, the second thing I find that patients, I think find very fruitful and rewarding is, is usually if you're not doing it at bedside, or if you send them to a radiologist, they can see the findings real time, you know, it's there and it's hard to miss even as a layman, if the power Doppler lights up, you know, if, if you see those little flickers and flames, you know, that that's as telling as anything. It's not like some rocket science that, you know, a radiologist has to read. And most of the time I find a radiologist also very informative with discussing with the patients too, as they, you know, scan real time. So I, I think, um, you know, it just puts a little bit more, puts a little bit more emphasis on the ultrasound kind of guided evaluation of emphysitis. Did they, so uh, you're talking about this from a standpoint of detection and then ultrasound's got clear advantages that are different than what the exam. And I don't think most rheumatologists do a good enthesitis exam anyway on, on their patients with SPA and PSA. They probably should because it's it's a, it's as important as a swollen joint. Um, but did they also look at this from the standpoint of res response to secukinumab? Like uh, did the enthesitis by ultrasound respond differently than enthesitis by clinical exam? Yeah, no, they responded similarly, you know, especially in the secukinumab versus placebo arms. If anything, I, I don't think there was a, st a statistical significance. I believe the um, the spark, no, you know, they were roughly about the same, you know, I think a few percentage points, you know, you look at the spark and actually the, the ultrasound. The thing with this though is because I'm not ultrasound expert per se, but they also had two definitions. One was power Doppler only, and another was power Doppler plus some other uh, factors. And, but when it was power Doppler only, it, it pretty, it matched up pretty well with the, um, with right. the, uh, no clinical. Evaluation. Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you uh, about what the definition was for the antizitis as well on, the, on, on ultrasound, because I do a lot of these in my clinics and you know, it's, it's a clear continuum. You know, you're gonna you're gonna have it's not it's not a yes or no, it's a very it's a very difficult question to answer. So so I would and sometimes you know you have really 
uh, a lot of damage and no Doppler, but people are in, in a lot of pain still. So it's a it's it's a tricky one. So so they use only Doppler or Doppler person as a feature. Yeah, they yeah. use Doppler for one definition, uh, mm -hmm. and another was Doppler plus what they called a combined B mode morphological yeah. abnormalities. And I think for us, you know, in rheumatology, I'm assuming that means things like enthesophytes. Um, you know, maybe some tendon swelling and, 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 and maybe, you know, other things we see besides just the power Doppler lighting up. So Orly, as, as one who does a, a lot of ultrasound in, in such patients, uh, are there, how, are there many examples where you change your treatment or initiate treatment just based on your ultrasound findings of enthesitis in these folks? Yeah. So it's a, it's a difficult one because, you know, what happens sometimes is, you know, because the way they present is similar and you're going to scan them and suddenly you see this Achilles tendon, you know, and it's very hypertrophic and there's erosions on the enthesis and there's like deposits and there's enthesophytes and, you know, you, you, and there's Doppler everywhere. And, you know, you think, oh my God, the disease is really active. Um, but, it, but the problem we have is that we know that none of our, of our drugs are really efficient on enthesitis anyways. And so it's, it's, if, if everything else is, is, is doing well, it's a really difficult decision to take. I personally, although, you know, we don't really have evidence uh, tend to intensify or, or, you know, change something, you know, taper up uh, when I see it. But the other thing, you know, it, it makes me think of this other abstract that, 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 that I, I can't remember the number that was presented where they looked at different uh, phenotypes according to the ultrasound findings. And, you know, it wasn't clear at all. And it wasn't clear if it was associated to better response to, to you know, different. So I think it's a difficult one, but I would, I would do something. Not necessarily switch, but do something. Right, right. Uh, again, I would. Uh, I have an ultrasound machine, and and while I'm not expert at it, enthesitis I think is uh, is, is at my skill set, and 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 should be used uh, more readily, and especially people who um, have pain. And when you really want to know, is it is it just damage, and and uh, as opposed to activity with inflammation, or and also is it. Um, fibromyalgia um, is another because a, a, a lot of FM pain shows up as enthesiopathic uh, like pain. And I think that that can be the big, big confusing um, clinical question. So, all right. My, mine was a, a late breaker from, um, was a late breaking poster that's been up for the last few days. It's um, um, a new uh, TIC2 inhibitor from Takeda and it's called TAK. 279 it's abstract number uh, l12 uh and uh it got a fair amount of discussion and play uh, it's a study of the selective tic2 in patients with psoriatic arthritis it's a it's a double blind randomized placebo control trial of 290 patients with psa who either received placebo or one of three doses of uh tak 279 5 15 and 30 milligrams once a day and they looked at um uh, ACR 2050-70 and POSSE responses at 12 weeks, 12 weeks being the primary endpoint. Obviously, safety and um, and skin uh, responses are important here. And the, again, the primary endpoint was an ACR 20, and that was a, achieved uh, in 53, 54% at the two highest doses, uh, 15 and 30 milligrams once a day. The um, a lower dose, maybe the inconsequential dose, was only 35% ACR20, and the placebo response rate was 29%. Uh, 
Um, the ACR 50 was uh, pretty close to 30%, and that was better at the two top doses. Uh, ACR 70 was about 13 to 15% and better than a 5% placebo response rate. Posse showed a stepwise fashion with dose, um, but the Posse 75 was only 46%. So, but you know, the problem with doing Posse scores in PSA trials is that the PSA trials are done by a rheumatologist who are variably um, so-so at doing skin exams uh, and not really well-trained. And But rather than blame the rheumatologist, I'll blame the patient because most of our patients really don't have much in the way of skin disease, right? It's not uncommon for them to have, you know, body surface area BSA of less than 3% going in. So you may not have much to deal with. So it's not really, a, a I would not say one of these trials in a, a, an ACR meeting, it's a good judge of what this TIC2 inhibitor will do skin-wise. I think, you know, for that, you're going to have to refer to uh, the current TIC2 inhibitor that's in the marketplace to cravacitinib, where it's certainly better than this, but it's not as good as, you know, what you're seeing with the, the, the you know, the 23 inhibitors uh, and the 17s and, now the dual 17 inhibitor that's at, that's approved, those numbers look really fabulous for plaque psoriasis. Um, they're not yet approved for, um, so, you know, psoriatic disease. So, but this is still, a, a, I think, a, a new entry. It's It seems like it came in pretty clean. Um, uh, maybe not the best data ever, but certainly on par with what I might have expected. Um, but you guys are the experts. What do you think of these numbers and these data and this drug orally? You know, I think I think I just wonder how I would position it. You know, because it it as as we have ducrevastinib that is that is probably gonna going to arrive. You know, and I don't see this being better than that. And so then my question is, you know, where do we if we can get another three or five of these of these compounds? You know, but if they all work the same way, or you know, then do you really want to use them if you already have one? I think that's that's always going to be the yeah, and and also we have this. Uh, there, the, the, there was this other compound that was looking very good. You know, the 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 I can't remember the the name of the was it TLO eight I think. Oh, um, uh, TLL zero one eight. That's but that was studied in RA. Yeah. Um, but it's going to show up, and that's a China study. Yeah. Uh, combined tick two Jack one inhibitor that had phenomenal RA results, but the study was only done in China. I know patients was better than topacitinib uh, and they plan to do a much larger trial again, only in China for next year. Uh, and they also plan to do it in, in uh, psoriatic disease um, that, you know, everyone's got their, you know, their eyebrows up on that one, but <laughs> you're right. When this, when these new drugs come in, the question is, you know, it's, it's above applesauce. Um, it's uh, it's above a non-steroidal, but where is it going to fit with, you know, between uh, amongst the methotrexate, the primalast, um, you know, uh, other uh, oral compounds you can do, and then you can go to, to you know, TNF inhibitors, uh, JAKs, you know, 17s, 23s, 12, 23s, you know, obviously they are lower entry items and when it's in just an, a second Me Too, TIC2 inhibitor, it's going to have to do something to compete with the existing TIC2. Robert, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, 
data is always good and the new drugs on the market is always good, but, you know, it comes down to like, like everyone's mentioned, how does it separate itself? You know, right now, I think with all of these drugs, um, you know, you just look at the PASI scores versus the ACR 20 and 50 and, and, you know, they don't really kind of separate themselves. Right. And you just mentioned the IL 23s are so phenomenal. And even the 17s are so phenomenal for psoriasis for psoriatic arthritis. It's yeah. Like you said, another kid on the block, and, you know, like most rheumatologists were probably hindered by what the payer allows us to prescribe. And number two, really some out of rheumatology preferences. Do you like needles? Are you, do you want only a pill? Do you want, you know, are there certain things that um, predispose you to not receiving this drug? And then, you know, I think for this one, um, for the tick twos, um, if they continue to kind of separate themselves from the jackanibs and the, of course, the oral surveillance study and, and the black box warning and, and things like that, that, that could kind of form its own niche. And um, I think that'll be a welcome aspect to this field. All right, let's move on to our next one. Orly, what, what do you have? Yeah, um, I have abstract 1641. It's the window of opportunity uh, in PSA. I thought it was, it was, it was a nice abstract. So they looked at the, uh, a big cohort around over 800 PSA patients. And so what they were interested in is knowing if the outcome at three years is, is similar or better or worse if people are diagnosed mm -hmm. and treated um, within the first 12 weeks of symptoms, between 12 and 52 weeks of symptoms of or over 52 weeks of symptoms. And so the first thing they, they, they looked at is what is associated with being diagnosed later. So being a woman, having a lower CRP, having less swollen joints, um, and having more antithesis, you know, which basically means they're they're taken for, you know, having fibromyalgia, you know, and, and maybe some of them do, I don't know, but uh, but but you know, technically they're diagnosed later. And 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 people that were diagnosed later in this study at three years were less likely to achieve um low disactivity, uh, to have a, a, um, they were, they had a higher DAPSA. They had, um, also a higher ASDI. Um, uh, they, 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 basically they were doing worse. The only thing that wasn't significantly different was the radiographic progression, but it was numerically also worse. Um, and so I think, I think we need to rethink a little bit, uh, the way we, Maybe we're biased in the way we we you know we, we treat patients. I don't know, but I think this is something that that we definitely need to keep in mind uh, because it has consequences in the way they will do in the future. Did you uh, so you, again a window opportunity? Did they actually show you though that an earlier diagnosis led to was a different profile and a different outcome? So less than twelve weeks and twelve to fifty two weeks, there was no difference. So basically what, what, what they were saying is that if you if you manage to diagnose within the first year, you're fine. There's not going to make any difference. But if you do delay over than a year, then this is where it starts to have consequences in the ability to reach minimal disease activity at three years. So they're sort of arguing against a window of opportunity in many ways, or they're making that window really wide. Yeah, uh, it depends <laughs> of the size of the window, I guess. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. This is a highly uh, contestable issue. Um, Robert, what do you think? 
I, I think this is a per perfect kind of circle back to the enthesitis ultrasound. You know, you just mentioned the patient population that's not diagnosed are women who have not many symptoms, but maybe some enthesitis. And I think, you know, for that kind of niche group of patients, that's exactly the population where I think ultrasound and some more, again, objective data makes it easier to sell to the patient, quote unquote, sell to the patient and to even to us, the need for DMARDs and biologics, right? Because if you see on the screen, you know, as a physician and the patient sees it, okay, there, there's inflammation and we need to act on it and, and act on it, you know, aggressively and early because we know we have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of drugs in our arsenal here for this. You know, I, I, I want to just flip the story from uh, a little bit away from the window opportunity and more towards what you um, sort of really spelled out, Orly, which is um, women being diagnosed late and being atypical. You know, I, I, so yeah, some of that could be fibromyalgia, but I think that this cohort is a difficult cohort. Women are presenting late, getting diagnosed later, have atypical symptoms, including enthesitis, um, may not have sky-high CRPs, and, uh, and all this contributes to why one of the many reasons why women don't do so well, uh, especially in PSA. And, and this is, I think, the really big challenge for all clinicians right now, that they need to tune in to what's going on with uh, women. And, and, and it's not just that they, you know, they have fibromyalgia and they feel things more differently or something like that. I think it's, uh, there's a, 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 I mean, I learned this a long time ago in the spa world that that you know, they women present older, and they have a lot more pain, and the functional consequences are greater, and it's not fibromyalgia. And so, I think this is a tremendous challenge for all of us. So, Robert, what do you have as your next one? Yeah, my next abstract is uh, not necessarily psoriatic arthritis dedicated, but you know, intersecting with the AXPA world, but focusing on the drug we we definitely use across both spectrums, which are NSAIDs. You know, I feel like anytime I even prescribe an NSAID, I get like death stares through Epic, you know, from the nephrologist on the patient's team. And this was looking at, um, it's abstract 1394, really stating, and the title is very, very frank, comorbidities, not long-term use of NSAIDs are associated with CKD and, and AXPA patients. So it's a large Korean study. They looked at over 12,000 um, AS patients, um, 120 were identified with CKD and they looked at the risk factors. They even, um, they also assessed the NSAID, they called it the NSAID intake score, which is pretty much a cumulative um, dose or amount of NSAIDs you've taken around three months, six months in, in one year. Um, and ultimately they found that the incidence rate of CKD was about 4.64 uh, per 10,000 patient years. And the factors that were significantly associated with CKD were age, uh, the Charleston comorbidity index, which I had to look up, which has your typical kind of players, diabetes, obesity, and such, and heart disease, and CHF, and a slew of other factors, um, hypertension, diabetes. And then, you know, they found that the, uh, the, the odds ratio when adjusted for comorbidities and medications did not have a correlation with NSAIDs, whether it was three months, six months, or one year based on their NSAID intake score. So, you know, um, you know, I, I was trained where, you know, I, I know a lot of kind of 
young trainees and your good friend Artie Kavanaugh mentions us young kids. Sometimes we forget about all the NSAIDs that are available um, and we kind of just jump straight to biologics. But I'm, I'm not shy to try a few NSAIDs. And, you know, although there's that stigma and I know obviously there, the CKD and AKI risk does exist, but, you know, I think this is a study that tells us that not to be at least shy in the beginning stages to give NSAIDs a proper try in these kind of patients. So the association um, with NSAID, with, uh, between NSAIDs and comorbidities, um, is that a, a casual or causal in, in, your, in your eye or by, by how they presented it? I, I, my worry is that they're getting NSAIDs because someone's afraid to give them a more aggressive therapy. Um, and maybe they're afraid because they have comorbidities. And, you know, the people who don't get treated aggressively are older and people who have comorbidities. So uh, what, what do you think is the association here? We're... Yeah, I, I think obviously very, they didn't obviously comment on that, but I think of course, you know, just pragmatically and logistically that does make sense. And I think in everyone who, you know, the first thing I look at when I even prescribe says number one is the allergy list. And number two are what kind of comorbidities are you presenting with? And of course, all of us are, are a little bit trigger shy when we see that long list. Of course, if someone comes in with all the things I mentioned, hypertension, diabetes, and any bump in the GFR, I may get trigger shy. But you know, I, I, I think just overall, if you compare apples to apples and everyone's quote unquote healthy at initial kind of presentation, this tells us not to be as, as afraid as, as uh, one would make us feel. Yeah, and, and I mean, they do point out a, a higher rate of cardiovascular events, but it's not gigantically higher. It's, uh, you know, 17 versus 14 per thousand patient years with non-steroidals. And that, while that may be significant, it's not gigantic. And the fact that they're, that this that NSAIDs are not associated with an increased risk of CKD, um, I'll go to, I'll ask the two of you, just as Robert just intimated, you know, I'm the old guy, you, you're, you're, you're the young guys. And when I talk to the, the my the young fellows and whatnot about the use of non-steroidals, they don't use very much. They don't use much in the way of pain medicines. Um, and and Artie and I, we we got started in clinical trials doing non-steroidal trials. So you know, and and yes, it was back in the days when non, there wasn't a lot more than non-steroidals. So everybody was on non-steroidals, and non and the non-steroidals were a billion-dollar business. I mean, the whole. Uh, FDA hearing on the COX-2 inhibitors happened because um, when you turned on the television um, on Saturday and Sunday, there were more ads for COX-2 inhibitors than there were for uh, the amount of the, mon the amount of money spent on one COX-2 inhibitor was more than all the ads for tires, beer, and something else big all put together on the Sunday and Saturday sports shows. And, and of course, that all translated to how much the government was spending and whatnot. But the idea was tremendously big market. Now they're not really that big at all. So I'm asking uh, you both, do you use non-steroidals very much? And if you don't, what are you using instead orally? Yeah, well, I, I'm I, I'm guilty, you know, I, I, I use them a lot. I use them a lot. And, you know, I, I, I think... <laughs> What I've been observing, uh, you know, over the course of my uh, short uh, career so far is, you know, a trend towards, uh, you know, GPs also kind of being more reluctant to prescribe them, yet all the patients are taking opioids. 
you know, and, and I've seen this trend, you know, and it's absolutely like crossing that way. Less NSAID, so more pain, more pain than more opioids. And, you know, one of the things I do all, all the time in my clinics is saying, hey, I think, you know, we should probably go back to that, to that uh, non-steroidal you were taking before and maybe, you know, drop the other one down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Robert, what's your practice, Dave? Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I try to use NSAIDs uh, when appropriate. And I, I think going back to what you just mentioned about how how those drugs are advertised, it's hard for us because it's not advertised, right? So there, if I say, hey, why don't you try Celebrex? They're going to say, what? I saw Humira on TV. I, I saw, you know, whatever, Cravacidinib right. on TV. Why It says, told me to talk to my rheumatologist about it. Why would I use a drug that's many, many years old? And when, when there's this newer one and newer and shinier is better, you know, so yeah. it makes sometimes we're, 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 our hands are kind of tied behind our backs a little bit for about that. Yeah. Dr. Google um, and the television do drive a lot of behaviors uh, in the clinic. Um, my uh, one is the Invigorate 1 and 2 trial. Invigorate is the studies done um, uh, to prove the efficacy and safety of intravenous secukinumab. The one trial was in uh, AXPA patients and the, the number two trial was done in PSA patients. The PSA was uh, almost 400 patients. The primary endpoint was an ACR 50. Patients were given, you know, they basically compared uh, um, the, uh, I guess they, what is this? This is a placebo control and then they cross over. Well, actually it's the IV, isn't it? Um, how did this go? Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's placebo i placebo IV secukinumab versus the real IV secukinumab, and then they do cross over at some time point. Uh, and again, the the response rate with the IV was 30, 30, um, one, 32 percent with an ACR fifty, uh, and it just got better o over time. This was the basis upon which the drug was approved. The interesting thing, of course, about this is the dosing. So the dosing that was used in these trials was um, if you had not received it, you got a loading dose of six milligrams per kilogram. And after that, you got three milligrams per kilogram, um, I guess, every month uh, uh, going forward. When it came for this drug, time for this drug to be considered by the FDA, other trials were in play. Uh, and the FDA uh, gave the company the choice of either doing more trials at three milligrams as a repeat dose because they were worried about some peak Cmax levels being higher than what they expected, and um, and they wanted more studies, or they gave them the lower dose. So six milligrams is the loading dose, but now the dose that's in the uh, product label is one point seven five milligrams per uh, per kilogram, and so that's what's currently approved for both SPA and PSA. Um, and I think that we're happy that the IV choice is there. It's going to be good for Medicare patients. It's going to be good for patients whom compliance is an issue. It's got other indications. But it uh, it doesn't have the flexibility uh, of dosing that you would want. So we'll, again, it's going to be dosed on a milligram per kilogram basis. But is this much of a is this a big matter? Oh, and by the way, if, if you want to hear a better presentation on the Invigorate One and Two, Atul Diadar, who gave the presentation at the meeting, did a nice video for Room Now. It's on our channel, and you can hear that as well or see that. But the for Robert and, and Orly, do you is this a an important addition to you, or it's just another thing um, to have now an IV option? Robert? I think yeah, I think for me, um, in terms of 
spa treatment or or psoriatic arthritis treatment it probably will be mostly um payer dependent you know uh, in terms of medicare coverage and such um but i'm actually more excited for the iv formulation of this in um pmr and gca and, and things of, of that sort actually and, and helping those that population of patients get treatment um, and I, I do see a very good niche kind of territory for that with, with those patients, but for psoriatic arthritis, and again, the patients tend to be a bit younger and they tend to like the at-home subcutaneous, which we can sometimes, um, I find some patients respond better to the 300 milligrams every month or 150 every two weeks versus the kind of standard advertised 150 every, every month. Um, and I think the, the, the typical psoriatic arthritis population they tend to like the at-home subcutaneous injections. So just for the audience, uh, Dr. Chow's referring to the um, Titan study from two years ago, which was a GCA uh, study using secukinumab showing really impressive results. Um, that was an early phase two. There's a much larger trial in progress and other studies, I think being planned for PMR as well. That's not currently approved, obviously, but it is a, a novel new addition to how IL-17 inhibition might be used in the future. Uh, orally, an IV option for you, is this uh, available yet in uh, Glasgow? No, 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 I don't think it's available. And I think, I don't think we're going to use it that much, to be to be honest. I think for me, I mean, most of the patients are quite happy to use the, the, the subcut. And so there is no, there is not much, uh, you know, population uh, for that. There's, there's only one thing, though, that I'm thinking, but we don't have the data uh, would be, you know, whether that would be better because it's a weight based dosing for people, you know, that are overweight or obese. And I'm wondering if that could make a difference for them, uh, because we know that, you know, for example, with infliximab, there's been, you know, so. So, yeah, I, I just wonder if that could be helpful, but we don't have the data. Yeah, so I I was listening today to the some PSA experts talking about this, and they that was a big point. Uh, the uh, availability for Medicare patients who can now get this, and now it can be paid for, and uh, and it helps them. Uh, and then clearly there are some patients in whom uh, um, administration compliance um, and, and whatnot, and basically basic ma patient management issues. It seems to work out well, so it, it it's probably going to have its niches where it will it will grow, especially in places that have infusion centers and they like doing a lot of infusions. So, uh, why don't we just do a few more um, of your favorites and then we'll wrap this. Orly, do you have another one? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the yeah there was this there was this pro probiotic one. You know the the this oh seven seventy eight. It was a small randomized controlled trial where they looked at there were thirty patients I think in each group, and they they looked at uh, probiotics. So it was a combination of uh, lactobacillus and uh, bifidobacterium, and they, they 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 combined them and then give they gave them to patients. It was placebo controlled, but it doesn't work. It it genuinely doesn't work. Uh, you know, it, it there was no different on on even the gut parameters actually were not really modified either. And so, I, you know, I wonder if it's just the strains that they selected that maybe were not uh, the best, because I think this is basically what you find in yogurts as well. Huh? 
Um, so, you know, I, I wonder if it's the intervention or the choice of the strains, you know, that is, the, but it, but in this current state, you know, it, it, clearly we can say it's not, it doesn't work. So unfortunately, well, I'll, before I taint this discussion with my own biases, I'd like to hear from Dr. Ch Dr. Chow. Yeah, I, I actually wrote about this. You know, I, I think a few things with probiotics. Number one, it has pro, right? So it's it has to be good. And, and it's very <laughs> easily accessible to patients. And, and I think whatever it is, food industry has made a very good PR campaign with probiotics. It has to be in everything. I even wrote my cat gets probiotics. It's her, his veterinarian, you know, recommended it. But when you look at the data, this is a small study, but it doesn't work. So it kind of begs the question, what are we really doing you know, you know, with this, maybe obviously outside of psoriatic arthritis, there is maybe some other gut microbiome pro, you know, of this, of taking probiotics, but at least in psoriatic arthritis, I don't think there's enough data just yet. Yeah. I mean, this does not endorse it. And I would recommend everyone uh, practice in an evidence-based fashion. And um, which means that um, you should turn off your micro, your your sound at this point for what I'm about to say um, through, and I'm sort of a reasonable believer in natural medicine and, you know, vitamin therapy and whatnot. And I, I look for evidence and I think there's certain things I might recommend. Um, obviously I am there to protect the patient. Um, and I'm also there to uh, pre, uh, uh, make sure that they're not being harmed uh, either medically or financially. Um, Cush rule number six is the more it with natural products, the more it costs, the less it works, meaning they're just bilking you from your money, uh, feeding on the, your your desire to treat something naturally like with probiotics. So A, I'm a big believer in a Mediterranean gluten-free, um, no carbohydrate diet for psoriatics and for spa. I'm, I've got hundreds of examples where it works really well. Have I done a trial? No, we've done a retrospective review. And the problem with a, a lot of these people is that they have very few joints going in and very modest activity scores. So the improvements, which they say are big, don't numerically show up as being that big. Um, but nonetheless, it's che fairly cheap. Um, patients are motivated to do it. When you give patients control, it may have a tremendous placebo effect, but I've been shocked um, and, and I mean, seeing devastating disease go to zero just with a diet. And in part of that regimen, because of patients who I talk to a lot, uh, is probiotics. And I think uh, personally, um, uh, I think you need to be with multiple strains, like four or five. And I think you need to be in the hundreds of billions of CFU counts. A lot of the commercially available stuff is not even close to that. And and I'm not talking about multiple drugs a day or a lot of money. I'm talking about, you know, I, I take a PB8 every day and I'm and I'm good and done. And it's, you know, cost me $26 for a three-month supply. So, um, so I think there might be, and there are studies, I must say bad studies, showing that probiotics do work in RA. But for every one of those, I can show you one that didn't work. So this is a good highly contested area. Most of the bugs, the things that you're ingesting are dead. And the question is, can you redefine um, or reshape your microbiome based on this kind of a ingestion? I don't think anyone really knows, but I, I don't, I'm pretty certain it doesn't harm. And uh, 
And I do think I'd like to see more research on this. So Robert, what, what's, what's your final one so we can end? Yeah, um, 2246, uh, big, big study, also real world data on switching or discontinuing biologics and psoriatic arthritis. Um, large retrospective database in, in uh, Japan. Uh, over 15 years, they looked, they used claims data, looking at switching or discontinuation kind of patterns for, for about up to two years, over 700 patients and very broad spectrum of, of biologics. They had the typical players in TNFs, adalimumab and, and um, sertilizumab. They had IL-17s, um, brodalimab, uh, secukinumab and ixkizumab. Um, they had risenkizumab and guselkimab even the uh, ustekinumab. Um, and they found that, you know, just as a whole and uh, in, in all the biologics at the 12 month mark, about 38% discontinued, 49% switched, 24 month mark, 22% discontinued, 31 switched. Um, but interesting, the, the interesting data here is risikizumab had the lowest discontinuation rate at 21% at 12 months and 32%. And that was followed number two by ustekinumab. Um, so two things. Number one, I feel like definitely the Japanese rheumatologists are using, it sounds like a, a way broader spectrum. And they actually had two other biologics. I forget off the top of my head. They just didn't have enough data on those two. So they didn't, they didn't include them. Um, so they're using, a, I think, a far broader spectrum of you know, biologics than, than us here. And number two is, I think really surprising data on the longevity, if you will, from this singular study on risikizumab and IL-23 inhibitors. Yeah, you know, this this uh, data dovetails with a lot of reports coming out of the psoriasis world, but also in psoriatic arthritis about the disappointing durability of the drugs that we often use and in, uh, in, in patients with psoriatic disease, that um, it's nowhere as close to those numbers you would see with RA and methotrexate, um, you know, uh, 50, 70% persistence on the drug over time. You know, the, the a lot of these studies are looking out at two years, it's uh, only 30% are still on the drug that they started. And, uh, and so there is a lot of switching, there is a lot of discontinuation. And, uh, and I, and, and the persistence, I don't know if that's efficacy, um, how long they've been on market on the market, the marketing of the drugs, you know, on television and whatnot, um, or the number of remaining alternatives that are at the disposal of the clinician and patient that would let them to lead them to switch and switch and switch and switch and switch. Don't worry, I got another one for you. And if you wait two weeks, there's a new one coming. You know that that whole uh, idea. So. I, I, in some ways I find this bothersome and, but I don't know what I need to worry about most. And I guess the bottom line is that if the patient's not doing well, they're not doing well and you've got to, um, but the, then again, what's the definition, you know, I'm sure this kind of study doesn't have a, a criterion for why they switched. It's whatever happened when that door is closed in the, in the, in the clinic. So, uh, what's your, Orly, what do you think about this data? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I, you know, I think that the question always is also if you compare with RA, you know, but, but there have so many more reasons to not doing well, if you think of it, right? Because their joints can be fine, but then their skin's not fine. Their skin's fine, but they're, they have like anxieties. 
or everything is fine, but they do have dactylitis. And I think that's one of the problems. I think in RA, if you treat the joints and, you know, you, you, you can see it coming. But then in PSA, the problem is there are so many domains you need to address. Um, and I think this is, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but I think this is probably one of the reasons why, why we see such a low maintenance over time. You know, that's a really, really important point. I'm so glad you made it because PSA patients are complex because of the multiple domains that they have in play. And I remember a report from Alexis Adi from a few years ago where I think she showed that the average patient had like three or four domains uh, and it wasn't uncommon to have more than that. Uh, of a, maybe there's something like nine total domains that one could have with psoriatic disease. So yeah, there are multiple reasons to fail. And, and, and we know our drugs are not equipotent in treating the skin or the joint or the emphasis or the eye or the, you know, go on and on and on. Uh, Robert, you get last comment on, on this report. Yeah. And no, I, I think just completely agree that it's, it's tricky to, to treat these patients. And sometimes it's not even just the, um, the, the efficacy, it's how the patient responds to the drug. You know, I, you have, I have, you know, I can't tell you how many messages or phone calls I get sometimes from, Hey, I had this side effect. You're not going to argue with the patient and you can't say, Hey, this is not a list of side effect. They felt it and they want to switch. They had a site reaction. And there's so many things at play with this, but I think at least it brings to attention that I think one, like we had one mentioned multifaceted approach of psoriatic arthritis. And number two, you know, uh, longevity is still one of those uh, kind of holy grails, I guess, if you will, uh, in treatment of psoriatic arthritis. Well, I want to thank our audience for tuning in to this um, psoriatic arthritis panel discussion. Um, if you're really into psoriatic arthritis, there's yet another podcast that's coming out soon. It's called the Psoriatic Arthritis uh, Podcast from ACR, and it's going to include all the psoriatic arthritis reports from the faculty strung together, so you can watch that. Tune into other uh, panel topic panel discussions coming up in the next few days. Uh, I want to thank uh, Orly and Name and, and Robert Chow for guiding this discussion. Take care.